Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. That is, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do. And as you turn there, consider a few questions with me to get our minds moving in the same direction. Who do you have in your life that will speak the gospel to you in all of life's varied stages? In tragedy, when tragedy strikes, who do you have in your life that can mourn with you and yet remind you of the gospel so that we do not mourn as those who have no hope? In pain, when the agony of pain and betrayal blindsides you and cuts you in a way that seemingly will never heal, who do you have in your life that will walk with you, cry with you, sometimes not even having words to say, and other times reminding you that this pain didn't blindside our Father, and though we may not see it now, He is faithful and he is able to mend those wounds. But, just, but not just crisis. In many ways, it may be easier to give and to receive care when the emergency flare of crisis goes flying in the air, exploding for all to see. In many ways, it is more obvious for your church family to rally to put out a fire But what about the million other ways that you need gospel encouragement in order that some fires in your life might be prevented? Who is there to help you douse the destructive fires of the enemy while fanning the flames of your affections for God? In plenty when you're flying high because of some big sale or some big promotion, who do you have in your life to celebrate this blessing with you and yet also remind you of Deuteronomy chapter 8? Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart Be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Is your life, here's the question this morning, is your life visible and accessible to your brothers and sisters so that they might speak the gospel there? In busyness and distraction? Like this is probably just me But does anyone else find themselves overflowing with joy in the gospel on Sunday? Resolute on Sunday in how you're going to pursue Jesus, love his people, and live on mission this week? And that lasts until about the time you hit 85 South on Monday morning? At which point your week hits you with a never-ending barrage of one thing after another. Atlanta traffic, work stress, Atlanta traffic, baseball practice tonight, oh no, curriculum night two, you get these kids, I got these kids, let's go. 
and then on and on until the next thing you know, your busyness has sapped every good intention you had of finding time to commune with God, finding time to check in with someone else, of finding time to be present and available in the lives, lives of those that don't yet know Jesus. Is our life visible and accessible to brothers and sisters so that they might speak the gospel there? This morning, I want to reflect on some basic truths. So we're not covering a whole lot of groundbreaking material, but I want us to reflect on some basic truths about God's design for our continued growth in the Lord. Namely, that God's plan for producing increasingly mature disciples of Jesus is Every disciple caring for one another, speaking the gospel to one another, and using the gifts given to them by Jesus. Said differently, my aim this morning is to stir up the entirety of the body to engage in ongoing gospel ministry to one another so that we would be well cared for, grow in our joy of the gospel, and therefore grow more and more into the image of Christ, pursuing his purposes in the world. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean that but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds it. Father God, God, we thank you for your word. God, we submit our lives underneath your word. We want to obey your word. 
God, I feel inadequate, know that I'm inadequate for the task of communicating your word fully this morning. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would give me the words to say. God, I pray that your spirit would be active through your word this morning, doing the work of of drawing all of us closer to you, drawing all of us more to the image of Christ. God, I pray that no one would walk out of here today burdened with just another thing to do or another heavy burden, God, but that we could see your gracious, life-giving design for the church. God, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, we see a familiar New Testament word, therefore, right? Here, the therefore in chapter 4, verse 1, points back to all that Paul has said previously in chapters 1 through 3 in the whole letter. It points back to the glorious gospel truths that serve as the foundation for everything that he's going to say in our passage here this morning and also everything that he's going to say in chapter 4 through 6 altogether. So it points back to wonderful, wonderful gospel truths like chapter 1 verse 3 where we find that because of Jesus, follow along with me if you would, in chapter 1, and we'll just skip around a little. In chapter 1 verse 3, we find that because of Jesus, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. In chapter 1 verse 5, it says that he has adopted us into his family. Seven, by his death, he has forgiven our sins according to, I love this, the richness of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Thirteen, when, when we heard the gospel and believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. 2, 4 through 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We have been regenerated and made new. 8 through 9 tells us this has been done by grace through faith and not by anything that we have done. 10, we are created in Christ to do the good works that he has prepared us for. 11 through 17 reminds us, kind of in summary, reminds us that though all of us by nature were far off, all of us were aliens and strangers to the kingdom of God, we have become the household of God. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." 
chapter 3, verse 10, it tells us that through the church, through the household of God, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. Verse 12 tells us that whatever suffering may come our way, we have reason for boldness and confident access because of Jesus' work on the cross. Verse, chapter 3, verse 20 tells us he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think because it is his power at work in us, glorifying himself through the church forever and ever. Therefore, therefore walk in a manner worthy of this calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 4.13, grow into maturity. And how much maturity? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Therefore, therefore, verse 16, we exercise our gifts so that we build each other up in love. We don't walk as we once did. Verse 29, we speak in a manner that builds each other up. Therefore, chapter 5, we put sexual immorality to death. We walk in wisdom. We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks. Therefore, chapter 5, our marriages reflect the covenant relationship of Christ and his church. Therefore, our parenting of our children must point them to the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Therefore, we can put on the full armor of God, withstand the enemy, and stand firm. My first point from our passage, chapter 4, 1 through 16 this morning, is profoundly simple something that you, most of you, will immediately just say, well, yes, of course, and it's broad. Number one, because none of us has achieved the fullness of Christ, we all stand in present need of ongoing growth in discipleship. Say it again. Because none of us has achieved the fullness of Christ, we all stand in present need of ongoing growth in discipleship. I take that from chapter 4, 1 through 3, where we see this list of character things, and it tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, and none of us walk in a manner fully worthy of that calling that we, receive, or that we, that we read about in chapter 1 through 3. I take it also from chapters 12 through 6, or verses four, chapter 4, verse 12 through 16, where it says that the goal is to, is until, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so none of us, quite simply, none of us has arrived, right? None of us fully walks in the manner of this calling, in the manner worthy of this calling. None of us has reached maturity that could be described as the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, right? Of course, none of us has. And I don't think I have to belabor 
the truth of this point this morning because it's so biblically obvious. That whether you're five, 35, 55, 95, as long as you are still here and breathing, the work of sanctification, the work of discipleship is not yet done. And I don't expect that any of us hears even the survey of Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, the implications of the gospel, and thinks to ourselves, check, I got that. But while our minds and theology rightly agrees with the truth that all of us still have areas wherein we can grow as disciples, I wonder sometimes if our lack of vehemence and our lack of diligence in pursuing Christ-likeness might communicate that we think we've arrived. When it comes to discipleship, when it comes to following Jesus, I would submit to you that our complacency in the task might be because the American evangelical church culture is often playing with the wrong scorecard. Right? Like, it's like playing golf with a child for the first time. Like, the first time my kids played putt-putt, my daughter comes to me and she said, Daddy, I got a seven. Knox got a four. You got a three. I win. No, my dear, that's called losing, right? Like, that's losing in golf. Lowest score wins. I'm four strokes ahead, quit playing hockey, okay? But church, when it comes to discipleship, I would submit that we have often, not always, but often, evaluated ourselves with a scorecard that overvalues knowledge leaves out our affections, and treats obedient action as optional. So, right, do you remember that story when Jesus calls his disciples? You remember? He says, come, follow me, and I will make you. Right, we know it. Most of us know the verse. We're taught it. We've memorized it. Have we become fishers of men? Was it enough for us to know it and not do it? This may be simply an imbalance. Worse still, it may in fact, and just bear with me for a second here, it may, in fact, be the cultural idol of consumerism affecting the church. So our culture, and evangelicals love to talk about our culture, right? Our culture, our American culture, says consume, consume, consume. What's in it for me? If it does something for me, I'll do it. If not, I'm out. And, and maybe not, like, agree, we can disagree on this point this morning, 
But as Americans, we swim in that pool of consumerism all around us, and we would be naive to think that we haven't swallowed some of its water. If we are going to grow into mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, if we are going to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, we are going to have to have a fully orbed view of discipleship that says, following Jesus does require my head. It does require growing in knowledge. And it requires my heart. It requires growing in affection, loving what is good. And it also requires my hands growing in obedience. In his book, Saturate, available right out here for free loan, just saying. In his book, Saturate, Jeff Vanderstelt defines discipleship as leading people to increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, he says, it's moving from unbelief to belief in every area of our life. So, All of us, right, have areas of our lives where we can cry out with the dad from Mark 9 that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. All of us have areas of our life where we are still learning to obey. And so, isn't it wonderful that we are not judged by our scorecard We are not loved more or loved less based on our scorecard. Rather, at the end of the day, we receive the reward for Jesus' performance, and he received the punishment for ours. Lest we be all gloom this morning, let us remember that it was the sheer grace of God that saved us. It is the sheer grace of God that we hope in today, and it's the grace of God that will bring us to the end. So I'm not pessimistic about the church. Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He who began a good work in us will carry it to completion. And moreover, I'm more excited than I have ever been about the work that God is going to do through us here at New Branch. So, one, because none of us has achieved the fullness of Christ, we all stand in present need of ongoing discipleship. Ongoing growth in discipleship. Now, the how. Okay? I'll read the point, and then I'll show you in the, in the text. The point is this. The God's design for our ongoing discipleship is every member of the body speaking the truth of the gospel and exercising their gifts. Again, God's design for our ongoing discipleship is every member of the body speaking the truth of the gospel and exercising their gifts. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 it says, 
There's one body, that's the church, right? There's one body, there's one, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So that's, that's the ways that we're united. That's the ways that we're the same. That's what brings us here together, all of us different. That's what brings us here. One, one body one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 11, one of the gifts he gives to the church And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, summary of that. God gave gifts to each one of us. Jesus has. The victorious king that's talked about in those confusing verses right there in 9 and 10, he gave gifts to each one of us. He gave leaders to equip the saints. Three, his design is for the saints to do the ministry of building up the body of Christ. Four, this happens by speaking the truth in love. Five, when everyone does their part, we all grow up more and more into the image of Christ. It's a beautiful design for the church. Who am I to judge? But that is a beautiful design for the church. So, verse 11, the importance of equipping, okay? Leaders, we got we to get this, and some of us know this, but, but we got to get this. Leaders are given to equip for ministry, not to do all the ministry. Bible, right here. If you have the King James Version this morning, the translation will obscure this, but the, the, the text is saying that leaders, apostles, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and then the saints do the other things there. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, what they do in their word ministry is equip the saints, and then saints do the ministry of building up the body of Christ when they speak the gospel in love and exercise their gifts. Okay, so leaders have a role. Don't hear me say that we don't want leaders and we're all just needed as leaders have a role. It's a very important role. And when I talk earlier about head knowledge being insufficient, I'm not saying we don't need teaching. I'm saying that equipping is not the end. Equipping is the precursor, and then we go do gospel ministry. We need teaching, right? Like, this passage here is shot through with the need for sound doctrine, I'm not anti-teaching by any stretch. I'm teaching. 
right here, right now, okay? Um, what I'm speaking against earlier is consuming teaching and not being transformed by it so that we do something with it. We need the study of the Bible. We need pastors and teachers to equip us in that. And then, having been equipped, we need to go and do gospel ministry. And the saints, the saints do the ministry. And who are the saints, right? Like we, Paul calls the whole church of Ephesus in chapter 1, verse 1. He calls the whole church saints. So when I talk about saints, I'm talking about every one of us in this room who has bowed the knee to Jesus. All who believe are saints. And all saints do the work of ministry. Or what another translate would, translation would say, all saints are equipped for works of service. So, I went to uh, Baptist College. Uh, I'm still recovering, but I, I went to, to, to Baptist College. And so class was on Mondays. And so from time to time, this is, this is true. We got other people here that were there with me. Okay, From time to time on Mondays, during the prayer request time, you have all of these guys who are like out doing ministry, doing t- pastoral ministry all week. And uh, you, sometimes on Mondays, you get this like sort of like Baptist brag prayer request, right? Like, I've got a praise. We had a revival this weekend. Four people gave their life to Christ, and two were called into the ministry. Wait. What about the four? Right? Four people gave their life to Christ, thereby becoming saints. So those four people were called into the ministry, right? Or in Baptist world, at the Baptist college, this is what they, part of like talking with professors, it's, it's always two questions. It's tell me about your conversion. Okay, that's a, a good, fair question to have. And then secondly, follow up, tell me about your calling into ministry. I just did. I told you about my conversion. That was my calling into ministry because that's when I became a saint and that's when you get called to do ministry, right? Now, I know, I know what's meant by the language and I know I'm picking on semantics here, but isn't that how we think about ministry? Isn't that often how we think about ministry, that we have this special set called guys, and they do all the ministry, and it's their responsibility to disciple folks, their responsibility to build up the body of Christ, their responsibility to see to it that we attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There is a distinction between vocational pastors and saints doing ministry, okay? There is a distinction, and, and this, it's how they pay their bills. That's the distinction between vocational pastors and saints doing ministry. Yes, there's a distinction between church leaders and saints, but the distinction is not who does ministry and who doesn't. The distinction is not who disciples people and who doesn't. That is not the distinction. The distinction is even here in this text that leaders get to focus their efforts in on equipping saints to go do ministry. 
So everyone is called to be a minister of the gospel. Everyone gets to do gospel ministry. And what does this ministry involve? Uh, look, turn, look at verse 15 with me. Whatever, whatever your gifting is, one of the things that it involves is speaking gospel truth in love. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So, we got to deal with a widespread misconception about what is view, in view here when Paul says speaking the truth in love, because if you have much of a church background at all, you've, you've heard this verse and you've heard it used to say, if I love you, I need to call you on whatever I see you doing wrong, and I'm just speaking the truth in love, right? Like, if I love you, I can say whatever I see about you that I don't like, and I can just say, like, I'm speaking the truth in love. So it's like the Christian equivalent of bless your heart. I can say whatever I want, call it speaking the truth in love, and it's okay because that's what it is. So I can say, you're a jerk. Just speaking the truth in love, man. Like, I'm trying to help you grow into Christ. You're a jerk. That's speaking the truth in love. Now, there are other places that you can go to in the scriptures and find the truth that we should lovingly correct one another, that we need to be iron that sharpens iron, that a wound from a friend is faithful. But that kind of correction is not what's in view here in Ephesians chapter 4. Here's two reasons. A, speaking the truth in love here is a contrast. It's a contrast See, where Paul says, rather... Verse 15, rather, that means he's contrasting it with what came before it. And Paul is here contrasting the truth with every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so the truth in love is the thing that's opposite all of those things. B, the phrase, the truth, is actually defined for us later in the chapter, down in verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So, deconstructing the false idea of what this verse means and having seen that the truth in, in, is in Jesus, looking again, let's look. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Speaking the truth in love refers to speaking the truth about Jesus, namely the gospel. It is being able to apply the truth of the gospel into one another's life having been equipped by pastors and teachers, we then speak the truth in love when we, we remind our fellow brothers and sisters of the gospel. So, to the scenarios from our opening, you speak the truth in love when you confess the gospel truths to one another in tragedy, in pain, in plenty, in apathy, 
in sin, in all of what life has to throw at us, we speak the truth of the gospel into that. And when I talk about saints doing ministry, this is the work of ministry. This speaking the gospel to one another is the ministry by which we all grow into the fullness of Christ. So yes, there are implications on our time, but I'm not talking about, all right, guys, we all need to do more ministry, so let's put a million different things on the calendar and, and sign up for more church activities and more programs and more this and that. I'm talking about speaking the truth of the gospel into your brothers and sisters. And so case study, right? Left to my own, when I forget the gospel, the same zeal with which I speak today turns on me and becomes the same zeal with, with which I will prosecute myself, find 10,000 reasons for which I'm unworthy of God's love, and land in a place of despair. Therefore, I need people in my life. God has so designed the church that the, the remedy for that is that I need people in my life, saints doing ministry, to remind me that though there be a hundred thousand reasons that I'm unworthy, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. My life needs to be visible and accessible to other equipped saints so that they can speak the truth of Jesus to me, thereby pointing me again to Jesus, thereby helping me grow in discipleship, thereby building up the body in love. Left to my own, when I lose sight of the gospel, I can pour myself into my work, stacking up achievement after achievement, cash after cash, while my relationship with Jesus suffers. Therefore, I need someone, some regular old equipped saint to come alongside me and remind me that it doesn't profit a man to, to gain the world and lose his soul, that I do have a God-given responsibility to do my job well, but that I have a God-given mandate to interact with my job in a manner that says that doesn't define who I am. Jesus defines who I am. I need some equipped saint to whom my life is visible and accessible to remind me that seeking ultimate satisfaction in achievement, money, or anything else outside of Jesus is drinking from a broken cistern that could never hold water. And I need someone to remind me that God's glory is the only thing in life worthy of my unbridled devotion. So here, here's the deal, guys. Christianity... The gospel addresses root problems in our life in a way that the world can't. Like, the gospel can get to the heart, change the heart of us, and therefore transform us. And so, here's the conclusion of the case study, right? Like, Pastor Ken doesn't have enough hours in the day to deal with all the unbelief that still hides within my heart alone. Nor does my elder absolutely, don't mishear me, they are there to help, you can, should, must go to them when you are struggling. But the first line of defense is the community of God that he has put around you. The family of God that he called you into when he called you to Jesus, that he adopted you into, though you were far off. John Piper says, 
Sometimes I wonder if the frequency and seriousness of many problems that Christians face is not owing to the fact that most Christians in America do not experience relational, interpersonal, supernatural church life the way the New Testament describes it. The inevitable effect of treating church as worship services and classes is to make the people of God passive and too dependent on ordained experts. And could it not be that this pervasive relational passivity and dependence of millions of Christians robs us of some of Christ's precious remedies for a hundred problems. If God designed the church to function like a body with every member ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit to other members in regular interpersonal relationship, then would it be surprising to find that the neglect of this regular interpersonal spiritual ministry cripples the body in some of its functions and causes parts of the body to be weak and sick? Isn't that what you would expect? This is... The work of discipleship. This is the work of growing into, more and more, into the image of Christ. This is head getting to the heart so that our hands can stay on the plow. This is moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life. And so we need every part of the body working properly. Church, for us to grow in discipleship, we all have a role to play. We all have gifts that he has given us for the building up of the body, and we must exercise those gifts in gospel ministry. And listen, I know, I know that this has implications for our calendars, and I know that that is a very real struggle. I know this feels like adding something to your plate, but before we go there in our minds, can we stop for a moment, dream a little, and ask what would it look like if a hundred some odd members had a renewed sense of their responsibility to disciple one another? Like, hey, I know we've been trying to get together. My son has baseball practice tonight. How about if you ride along and we can talk while he learns to catch a fly ball? Hey, I've got to take the kids to the pool one last time before it closes for the season. Why don't you bring yours over too and we can talk while we watch them? Hey, here's a hard one for you. Hey, I'm having a hard time. Can I come over for dinner tonight? Hey, the kids go to sleep at 8 o'clock. I don't go to sleep until midnight. That's a lie, 2 Uh, (laughs) a.m. Maybe we can meet at Waffle House at 8.30. Right? Like, I can come home. I can eat dinner with my family. I can talk with my kids. I can be present for my family. I can also be present for my church family. They're not at odds. Can you imagine all the glorious gospel fruit that would come from that? Sin being repented of, wounds being healed, idolatry being rooted out, Christ being treasured, God being glorified, heart overflowing with gospel, out of the heart, mouth speaks, mouth now speaking gospel to places that need to hear the gospel. Our family, 
neighbors, co-workers. Far be it from us to sell God's glorious vision for body life because we won't do the hard work of figuring out how. If we're going to be biblical, biblically faithful disciples of Jesus, we simply don't have the option to live a life wherein we come on Sunday morning and get equipped. We go to a sermon discussion and we get equipped. We go to a Bible study, we get equipped. All the while, it's equipped, equipped, equipped. Received, received, received. Receive, receive, receive. Consume, consume, consume. All the while, never pouring ourselves out in works of ministry to one another. It's not an option on the table. And it's not desirable. The biblical vision is better than that. And the biblical vision is not unattainable. The fact that it may disrupt a few things and make us uncomfortable is a hurdle to overcome. It's not a hall pass to cease trying. So we talk about big things. We talk about grand design of the church. We talk about discipleship. And we talk about like growing and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then sometimes that can just be overwhelming. Let me give you what I think are some very, very practical points of application in closing. Number one, settle the issue biblically of your need to both give and receive ministry from others. So you go from here, search the scriptures, settle this issue. You say, is Tyler telling the truth? Is Tyler just getting zealous, or is this the truth of God's design? Settle that issue biblically. And then settle this issue biblically as well, from the New Testament, from your study of the New Testament, settle this issue. Can everything that that the Bible describes about the church body's life, can that be accomplished on a Sunday morning in your base group meeting alone? Can you get all of that into three hours? And so, once you settle this, it's important that you start there, because once you settle this, it becomes, a, uh, uh, it becomes obedience. It doesn't become optional. It becomes simply obedience. Start there. Once you settle it, you can begin to figure out how. And listen, how may take time. I'm not proposing that we're all going to get there this week, that we all, in response to to God's vision here for the church, need to just, like, make all these swift changes. I'm not. There's grace to, to, to figure out how this does align, how we can build these rhythms into our life. It's going to take time. There's room to move slowly but diligently here. Second, We started this this past week, if you're part of a base group. Find ways to spend time together. Determine how to just get together. Get creative. I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know how to tell you to do that. Find ways to get together because you've settled the issue biblically and you know that this is a need that you have. Third, Learn to speak the truth of Jesus. Okay, don't, when we get together, don't give the same counsel. Don't talk in the same ways that the world talks. Rather, speak of Jesus when you get together. 
do it awkwardly and weirdly until you figure out how to do it naturally. Speak of Jesus. So, God's plan for producing increasingly mature disciples of Jesus is every disciple caring for one another, speaking the gospel to one another, and using the gifts given to them by Jesus. Let's pray.